This episode of On Comedy Writing is brought to you by HBO on Amazon. What if I told you we could combine your love for premium cable with your dependence on online shopping? I bet you'd go pretty crazy. Well, time to go fucking nuts, because now we can. An HBO subscription includes instant streaming of unlimited access to addictive dramas, hilarious comedies, movies, and so much more. Fans of this show will love watching Veep, Silicon Valley, Mr. Show, Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is back and I, I've been enjoying. I think it's doing okay. I think I think some older episodes are better, but this is certainly still good. I love Curb. Uh, I like how I put my review of Curb into this HBO on Amazon ad. They actually, Curb filmed right outside my apartment in LA like seven months ago, so I can't wait to see the outside of my apartment in the show. Uh, you know, this should be an ad for Curb. I wouldn't have said it was okay. I would have said it. Anyway, Amazon is offering a free seven-day trial for HBO, and you can get it by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash Amazon HBO. After the trial, you get unlimited access to anything on HBO for just fourteen ninety-nine a month. That's a good deal for HBO. My parents pay for HBO, and I assume they're paying more than that. Once again, get your seven-day free trial for HBO by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash Amazon HBO. It's not TV. It's HBO which is brought to you by Amazon. This is a Boardwalk Audio podcast. On comedy writing, on comedy writing. Thanks for downloading this episode of On Comedy Writing, the podcast about the business and craft of writing comedy. I'm your host, Alan Johnson. We've got a great episode, but first, the best way to support this show is by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash oncomedywriting. Click the support our artist button and shop on Amazon like you normally would, and we get a little kickback. Our guest this week is Emmy Blotnick, formerly from Nikki and Sarah Live and At Midnight, and she's currently the head writer on The President Show. She just recorded a half hour for Comedy Central a few weeks ago, so be on the lookout for that. If you like this episode, make sure to check out our episodes with Mitra Juhari from The President Show and Nick Weiger, Chris Kula, and Craig Rowan from At Midnight. So here is Amy Blotnick. Emmy, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, where are you from originally? I'm from Boston originally. Okay. Oh, I hope I'm not destroying this microphone. Hold on. It sounds right. Okay, good. It good, sounds good. Good, good. <laughs> there, that feels right. Um, yeah, I grew up in Boston. What was, uh, what was that like growing up there? Uh, like cold and, you know, <laughs> it, it's good. Like I grew up in Cambridge, which is sort of Boston adjacent, I guess, but it's, um, it's a good mix of, there's a good mix of people there. It's like, uh, a lot of colleges and, and like Harvard's there, right? Harvard's yeah. there. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> it, it, there's like, you know, a good mix of like very smart people and like, it's. It felt fairly diverse, I guess. I feel like Boston has a reputation for being, like, extremely white, but, I, you know, I guess it is. <laughs> oh, but, yeah. I, <laughs> but I like it. So, I like the city, not the whiteness. Right. Well, Boston's also got a reputation for being very liberal, so it's kind of both. Yeah, yeah, Which yeah. is interesting. It's an interesting dichotomy there. Yeah. Uh, did you, were you like interested in comedy at all when you were, uh, younger? Yeah. I mean, my whole family, like we all, that was like sort of part of the bonding ritual. I think we used to listen to like the 2000 year old man and like my parents really liked Jackie Mason and oh, wow. stuff like So we would listen to like some comedy records all together 
and I watched a shitload of television growing up. So, you know, I felt like, I think I I felt connected to comedians just because they seemed like, um, like the people who got it, you know what I mean? (laughs) Where I was like, oh, you know, like, I, I think... Yeah, we, we watched we watched a lot of comedy. I was in my house, so. But what kind of uh, stuff specifically? Um, let's see, a lot of SNL, and it was a good mm-hmm. moment of SNL. I mean, everybody likes the SNL cast when they were like a teenager, I think. But right. mine, I, I had like the years of uh, uh, like Tina Fey and Amy Poehler and Maya Rudolph and Anna Gasteyer and Molly Shannon and like. There were, you know, and like, that was like the first like female wave of SNL, right? I, th- I guess it felt like. I mean, I didn't know at the time because I wasn't like I didn't have a, a like the sort of big picture of it. Right. But I was just like, oh, look at these people like having fun, <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of like I watched a lot of late night shows. Like um, the my dad was a Jay Leno dude, and then I would watch Conan, and um, you know. I, I like. I just started to. I, I liked the like shorter format for comedy. Okay. So, but you said you watched a lot of TV. Were you watching like a lot of just like random like drama stuff as well and everything? I feel like it. We got cable pretty like on the later side in my house. Like I remember, I used to have to go over to a friend's house to watch like Clarissa explains it all and and Sabrina the Teenage Witch and. Uh, shows like that and then we got cable and i was just glued to it so it was i watched a lot of mtv and vh1 and it was like not necessarily comedy i just Mm -hmm. you know it hmm. i have like pretty spotty memories of watching like the grind on mtv what was the grind oh my god it was just people in bikinis dancing really (laughs) it was half an hour of people dancing that's crazy what time did it air uh it was at like 7 30 in the morning oh yeah that kind of makes sense (laughs) that's their version of good morning america yeah just like just like babes in cancun and uh you know like various vjs doing like we're here in Cancun. <laughs> like, <laughs> I remember watching uh, like Next. That was like the classic. Yes, of yeah. My generation. All those shitty game shows. I watched yeah. those too, and it's weird. Like, I felt I I feel like a different species than the kind of person that was on <laughs> right. Next or whatever. Like, just by virtue of not being like a like vivacious blonde. Like, I don't know. It, but it was a. Uh, yeah, it was an interesting time. <laughs> and then that was also when um, when they had when the first version of Best Week Ever was on, and I remember really liking all the comedians on that show at the time, mm-hmm. who now all have like giant great careers. So, you know, hey, that is really random because you always hear like I feel like I think I've heard like they were paid like fifty bucks, like very little money. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, to do that, and it was like some of the best comedians like around. Yeah, it was like insane. John Mulaney and like um, Christian Finnegan and Jesse Klein. There were all sorts of good people on that show. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Uh, were you uh, doing it like any comedy stuff like when you were younger, like around that time? We had, I was actually, I feel in retrospect pretty lucky because we had a cool improv teacher at my school when I was in like middle school, high school. We had like the one teacher who everybody was just like in love with and obsessed with taught improv. So it was, that was like the first chance I had, I think, to be like 
a big old goofball in a, <laughs> a relatively safe setting. And uh, I, I went to like, you know, when I'd go to camp and stuff like that, we would put on like theatery type shows. So, you know, it wasn't, it didn't feel like doing comedy necessarily, but it, it was like, uh, like, you know, it was good fun. It's kind least. of scratching that itch a little bit. A little bit, bit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Was it short form improv? Yes, it was like whose line is it anyway mm-hmm. style, which like, you know, because we were like kids with no attention span, so right. we weren't like doing heralds. <laughs> it was <laughs> it was a lot of like games and just trying to get laughs out of your classmates. Mm-hmm. Uh, where'd you go to college? I went to Northwestern. Okay, cool. Which also has an incredible amount of comedy stuff like available. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I I did improv the last year I was there it took me a while to like find those people but I uh I did improv and then I did my first stand-up set in the last the in like the tail end of my senior year so yeah what um what did you come in as like a major of oh my god I was a communication studies major which like I don't know that that should be a major right (laughs) it was I'm not really sure what we learned uh, in <laughs> retrospect, but I was, I just wasn't, I didn't, my, I was probably like, my self-esteem was just too low to come out and be like, I'm a actor. Like, I just, I didn't feel, I didn't feel like a performer. So I, I didn't do theater or they have like a radio, television, film program that I just sort of like automatically discounted myself from. Really? Yeah. And communication studies was a lot of like, uh, mm, it was a lot of really vague classes that I, I, w- I just, I can't even explain them. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I did film, but I also, I had to take a media studies class in that. Mm-hmm. And one of the, one of the classes we took was like media studies law, which was just like, no, not much reason to know that. I mean, there's a little bit, but not much. Yeah. And then there was another class, like just being a critic and we'd, uh, we'd do, we'd do like movie reviews and stuff, but then we'd also just watch the Emmys and live tweet the Emmys. That's pretty funny. And that was considered like uh, a <laughs> media critique. <laughs> I, um, yeah, I, I. I can't explain what kind of classes fall under. <laughs> what were you, what did you study in college? Uh, film. Oh, cool. But yeah. we we had to take uh, there wasn't enough film classes, I think, so we had to take media studies classes with it to graduate. Right on. Which was great. <laughs> uh, so you said like you didn't think you had enough self esteem. When did that change for you? Like, what made you decide to do the improv and then do stand up and stuff? Well, by the time I was, by the time like graduation was coming, I had I did this communication studies major and I picked up minors in film and uh, legal studies, which I <laughs> think like paints a pretty accurate picture of like a like a lost <laughs> person. <laughs> um, I because my I, my parents weren't like. They weren't like don't do comedy, but I think they wanted me to go in a like more stable direction because that's what parents do, and uh, so I, I wanted to be like equipped to go do like business shit if that's what it had to be, <laughs> and I think eventually like hmm I don't know I I I just felt like I had done um, I had like lived in the dorms and like gone to a couple of comedy shows on campus and like just thought it was worth a shot at the last minute (laughs) so um 
Yeah, and those ended up being, like, a lot of them, a lot of the people that I did improv with in college are, like, off doing big things now, too, which is really cool to see. Do you remember what your uh, your first stand-up set was like? Yeah, I was fucking terrified, man. <laughs> I, I, first of all, for the stand-up shows at on campus, you'd have to audition in a fully lit classroom with, like, two of your peers sitting oh, no. at desks watching you come in and do like two minutes of material and i'm pretty sure i had typed out mine word for word and was reading off a page and shaking so and i i think the i have my i don't oh boy i wish my memory of this was better i i bombed pretty hard and didn't get put in the show the first time and then the second time i like i don't know i But it, yeah, it was very nerve wracking. Performing for other college students, though, is pretty great. That's about as kind an audience as you can have because mm-hmm. everybody's like drunk and happy and relates to you automatically. <laughs> right. Like you have everything in common. So, like, by the time I actually did a set for an audience of my of my peers, they were all really nice and it went pretty well. Um, of course, when I moved to New York and did those same bits, they all ate shit incredibly. <laughs> so, you know, I think everybody was just really nice at Northwestern. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, your bits were all about Northwestern cafeteria, so... <laughs> I mean, I, I probably should have just done, like, five, a tight five on cafeteria food. Like, what are they serving us all these broccoli stems for? <laughs> they served broccoli stems a lot, and, like... Really? Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> and, hey, it is. It's... You know, you got to use every part of the broccoli. <laughs> uh, that's crazy that you had to, like, audition. It must, I mean, it must have been very competitive, I guess. Well, they were, it was student groups, and because, I think partially because I hadn't been involved with theater stuff at all before, I came in, like, kind of a stranger, and, it, you know, it, I, I think it was probably easier for people to just pick other people that they know and have worked with and can rely on or whatever, mm-hmm. so, yeah, it... That's that's like the the system that's set up there, I guess. I don't know how it is now, but mm-hmm. um, they all ended up being my buddies, so <laughs> it, it works out. <laughs> uh, after you graduated, uh, what did you what did you do? I came to New York, and uh, I had a job doing basically data entry, uh, and I did open mics at night, and I took improv classes. I I think like. Now it's more of a common approach if you want to do comedy stuff to like go to UCB and like take it seriously and take it like as if it were a graduate program basically. And so I like I did the first handful of improv levels and a couple of sketch classes and um, sort of like found a little bit of a community there and then stand up. I ended up liking stand-up a little bit more just because I had more control over it, I think. Like, you don't have to wait for people to meet you at a rental studio space in Midtown. <laughs> and you're not like, oh, like, Doug can't get off his shift at the <laughs> hospital. <laughs> like, you know, I had I, I had practice groups that I worked with that were, like, fun and wonderful. But it was, you know, all of us were squeezing it in as a side uh, you know, like something between a hobby and a side pursuit, I guess. So stand up at least it could be like, Hey, I got off work early, which mic can I get to? Mm -hmm. And like, that was, you know, I felt like I had a little bit more, uh, a little bit, I could, I could like steer it. So what were the, like the first like moments 
uh, when you're doing stand-up, like when you realize, like, oh, this is something that I'm, like, good at and I can keep going with this? Oh, man. I I think, yeah, the first couple of years, I was just so relieved to not bomb that, like, I'm not even... My first bunch of jokes probably would feel like total nonsense now. I don't even really remember what they were about. But, I, yeah, I, when you first start, it's just, like, thank God I'm not bombing. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, that, that was enough to keep me going, mm-hmm. I guess. And also, other comics in New York were so much nicer than I thought they would be. Like, I went in thinking everybody was, was going to be, like, like a, I was joining a dog fighting ring or something. Like everybody was going to just be like giant, you know, like I was trying to join a pack of motorcycle people or something, but most of them are very nice and want to be friends. So that was, that was a relief. I felt like connected enough to people in the scene at the time that like going to Mike stopped being so scary and like performing for them stop being so scary so when when you do an open mic now like uh or not now but like when you when you're doing mics before what was like like what are you looking to get out of an open mic usually i would show up with like a few bullet points they'd give you something between two and five minutes at a mic and so i'd show up with like here are the things i want to try usually a few bullet points and um you just try to whip through them in the time you have and just is anything working is it is it connecting at all and mm-hmm. like you know when when something would work you know then you'd go home and listen i would listen to sets from open mics pretty often just because when you're that nervous when you're first starting like you may not be a very good judge of what's working like um you know we're all we're all biased or like for or against ourselves I guess (laughs) so I would listen back and be like okay that part works this part doesn't work and you know start trimming fat off things and refining them a little bit um but yeah yeah it just felt like I I think a lot of people compare it to like um going to the gym I guess where it's like you have to just keep showing up and like Mm -hmm. put in the time and you know just sort of like focus on your own progress so is it is it weird that it's kind of like an audience made up of other stand-ups who are like just waiting yeah (laughs) because our like a room full of comics is not the same as a regular audience obviously like we're we're a much like darker people and like uh you know there would be some comics i remember when i was starting there were a few who felt sort of like seniors that would come and spend their open mic sets just shitting on everyone else. And I remember being like, that guy's my hero. Even if he hadn't worked out any, any bits that he could ever use again, if he just spent two minutes talking about how much the guy before him blew, that was like, that's sort of a gift to a room of comics. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. (laughs) Uh, and you, you worked at Jimmy Fallon for a little bit, right? Yeah, that was, that was, I got very lucky because, so that data entry job was at NBC at the time they were, I mean, looking back on this, boy, is this an ill-conceived project. It was, they were basically trying to build their own Yelp, like, 
an <laughs> index of business. Like Yelp already existed. Right. Like there were definitely people who had already been like, here are all the businesses, and we were like making a new one for some reason for NBC. <laughs> yeah, that's so they, weird. They wanted like an online. It would. It was sort of like it would be like a page for each city, and like here are the cool places to go and stuff. I I get. I think that was maybe like. A, a category of website that was popular at the time like uh but this one just felt like it was it, it was pretty depressing <laughs> um and it, but it was on the same floor as Jimmy Fallon's show and I had been an intern there for one summer between years of college so I had a few like friends there a few people who I knew who I liked and I would like every every once in a while if I was feeling like brave and if my like self esteem was in good shape that day I'd like go say hi and like you know just sort of um, try to stay I was like a little gnat basically just sort of like hi I'm still here and like, <laughs> um, eventually one of the uh, one of the bloggers they had like a that show was pretty um, at the time when Jimmy Fallon shows started, they had like a, a pretty fleshed out web department, which other shows did not yet have. Now everybody has it, but it was, there were three comedians who ran the website. And so one of them left and I ended up, I interviewed for that job and ended up getting it. And I was like, my brain just exploded. <laughs> I was just so like in, in disbelief that I got to go there every day. <laughs> <laughs> what would you do as a, as a blogger? A lot of it was just like posting clips from the show on the website and being like, here's, you know, like, uh, here's a country singer <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> um, but we also got to make some original stuff. Like we would do little backstage segments with guests and um, like, you know, little interactive things with uh, fans of the show and, you know, we would run the Twitter account, the Facebook page, and all that sort of stuff, just trying to give people more more access to the show, I guess. And they were pretty cool about letting us take chances and like it it was it was a very it was a very cool way to get acclimated to working on a show. Mm -hmm. So is it kind of uh, weird being somewhat like adjacent to the job you really want? Of course, yeah. yeah. You're like watching people. That you're like, oh, that's the, that's the fun stuff. Yeah. But like, you know, I was also like 23 or 24, and I was lucky to be in the mix of that at all. That's I, that's how I felt at least. Like it was, it was something. It wasn't like living the dream to be a blogger in a like windowless office, but it was pretty damn close, and it was like definitely better than writing the yellow pages from scratch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so. And then you worked at Nikki and Sarah live. So this was, that was the turn that like I, I could not have predicted that would go that way, but it was so fucking cool that it did. So Sarah Schaefer was one of the bloggers at Fallon oh. and she and Nikki Glazer pitched their talk show to MTV. And so I like when she left like we had been working together and I just I was like in love with both of them still am they're great <laughs> and uh they they gave me my first writing job wow yeah did you have to do like a packet for that I did and uh I remember being like super nervous about it because it felt 
it felt possible. I was like, oh my God, this could actually happen. Like we know each other, we get along, like I love these people. And so, yeah, it was, it was really very exciting to, to, uh, after observing like how writers function to get to go take a crack at it. What was that packet like? Was it like just monologue jokes and then stuff like that? Yeah, it was pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. It was like, you know, monologue, sketch pitches. uh, I think there were a few, maybe like interview games or something like that. But uh, I had also, Nikki and Sarah had a podcast before that. And I used to go, they had a little live audience for their podcast. There'd usually be, it'd be the two of them and a comedian, sometimes a musician and like, maybe 10 or 15 friends and fans sitting on the floor listening. Mm. So I had gotten a pretty good sense of their dynamic together and like had, I felt like attached to them in Mm -hmm. some way. So, you know, it, the packet was not, uh, it was not like a stab in the dark. It was like, I want to give these two people as many good ideas as I can. Uh And you were, you were there before the show actually started, right? Uh, yes. I had helped a little bit with the pilot um, in sort of a non-official capacity, yeah. I guess. I'm not sure. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it, it, it was so, that writer's room was so fun, too, because it was, it was small. There were four of us. Oh, and wow. Four writers, in addition to Nikki and Sarah. Yeah. And we were all first-time writers. And uh, our boss was Brian McCann from Conan. Oh, wow. Who is, I mean, when I found out he was the head writer of that show, I burst into tears because I had watched his sketches in like my, all throughout my like formative years and was just like crazy about him. So, and he is as advertised, like wonderful, hilarious. Uh, oh, he was, he was such a cool dude to work for and with. <laughs> what was uh, a regular day there like? It was like we we were. It's funny we were reading like a lot of tabloid news. It's it. I say it's funny just because like that news feels super irrelevant now. But at the time, <laughs> because our government was in a stable place, we could have we could focus on like, you know what, uh, like who had a nip slip that day <laughs> or whatever. So, but we it was very it was like we did tabloid stuff, but with some awareness that it was all meaningless and like was. Um, it, and it, it was fun fodder just to goof on. And Nikki and Sarah also were both like, they were sincere fans of Justin Timberlake. And like, there was a good mix of like some ironic stuff, some sincere stuff. Mm-hmm. Like we would basically just try to come up with ways to take the news and like filter it through their perspective. Right. And like, you know, everybody would write monologue jokes separately. We'd like do the whole, it was, it was, that was a very good first experience how do you how do you approach writing a monologue joke uh man i don't i don't quite know how to answer i should know how to answer that (laughs) i guess you like traditional monologue like it's it's you just have like one sentence laying out the story and then a sentence to like find a take on it basically so a lot of it was just looking for um like, we did a lot of absurd jokes. We would do a lot of, like, you know, graphics where it would be, like... I mean, in the I think it was in the first episode, we ended with a life-size statue of Ryan Gosling made entirely of poutine because, <laughs> because it was, like, some Canadian holiday. And that was basically a, like, super blown-out monologue joke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
so after you guys did a few episodes, did you find like the show changing at all? Yeah, I mean, that, I think that happened. It's the first few episodes of any show are like mm-hmm. finding the footing of it, you know, and um, we, I think, eventually found like a pace. It's funny, this was long enough ago that a lot of the specifics haven't quite stuck with me, mm-hmm. but um, you know, in the first episode, there were some things that worked right away that were like funny that we all enjoyed. Like in the first episode, we had a a ticker of news, like of a tabloid news, crawling across the bottom of the screen that just got increasingly removed from <laughs> the news. So like by the middle of the first act, like across, I remember this is what I do remember. Uh, it was like a couple of headlines and then a couple of things that were like not headlines at all, and then it would be like. Here's a food three times. Yams, yams, yams. <laughs> and that would be moving across the bottom of the screen while they were doing jokes about like celebrity news. And it felt like that was one thing where I was like, oh, we're going to do this again and again. Because yeah. it's so fun just to wedge in nonsense. <laughs> uh, so after that show ended, what did you do? I, uh, I worked on the, re- or like the second or third coming of Best Week Ever. Oh, yeah. Um, toward its end uh and that was you know that was fun too it was like a good mix of there were it was a good mix of comedians who I knew from stand-up and then a few that I didn't so it was like learning to write for different people's voices um more more voices Mm -hmm. basically and uh it was it was fun yeah yeah and then you worked at midnight as well later yes yeah that that job I feel like um that was like almost like a, a joke writing boot camp because you, you see like with that show how how many jokes they pack into half an hour is like I I don't think there is another show that crammed in as many jokes as that one whether whether you like them or not right. there is a laugh like every five seconds on yeah. that show so uh, you know we would we would there was a lot of like writing around the table, like pitching out loud. And I really like that style just cause it feels like it, it has a little bit of a performance thing built into it. Oh, interesting. Cause okay. you sell, you sell your joke to the room. So, yeah. um, so I liked working there a lot. It was also a really, really funny bunch of people there. Like the writer's room when I got there was, um, Chris Kula, who you talked to, um, Blaine Kapach, uh, who is like a virtuoso, gifted <laughs> joke machine. Um, Matt Myra, uh, Vanessa Ramos. There were like a lot of really strong, awesome joke writers there, and they were so welcoming when I showed up. So, yeah. How many jokes do you think you'd write like a day for each episode? Oh, I mean, it also it 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 defined a joke here because some of them right. are just puns and like. <laughs> The volume of puns was very high. <laughs> um, you'd probably write something like maybe a couple dozen, or like it depends on the day or, or how much how much uh, you're working with the panelists or whatever. Right. Like, but yeah, if you throw out, I threw out like yeah, a a, a good hearty handful of <laughs> puns and things. It, it's kind of uh, fascinating because it's like. You know, for like Nikki and Sarah, you like write in their voice. Yeah. But then like every day there's a new person to write their voice for. But that's, I think that's like a gift if you're, um, 
you know, like building experience as a writer to work with every kind of comedian yeah. is like, that's so awesome. I, we got to meet, or I, you know, you'd work with a different person every day if you wanted to. And, uh, it, it was good to see how different people work and like to learn, okay, what's of this page of jokes that we have, like what's most likely to work for the show and work for this person. And like, yeah, it, it was, it was so much fun. There was like a good, a good amount of, uh, sameness and a good amount of variety mm. built into the day there. So how, how much are you, uh, I mean, there's not much time cause you've like just one day, but how much are you like refining the jokes throughout the day or just like kind of going off of it? Uh, there's a, there's a bit of refining. Like we would write a sort of a first pass at things. <clears throat> Excuse me. We'd write a first pass at things, and then like present them to. It would, we would have a meeting with Chris Hardwick and the staff, like the rest of the staff, and we would get a sense of what was working and refine that, and then uh, do a rehearsal. And usually, like he would riff something amazing, and that would get kind of like built into the script. Uh, or, you know, like there was, yeah, it was sort of, we'd come in at like eight or nine in the morning and then have until about four to tinker with it. And it's very satisfying to make a show every day and have it have a, a finite, like it's got to go on TV. So we're done. Like, right. uh, as opposed to that's, I haven't worked on a sitcom and I imagine it would be frustrating to sit with a script for like a year or whatever I'm used to I got used to the instant gratification right. of like it aired that night and blah 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 but is there also a, a grind to that where it's like every day you're like have to come up with like these this amount of jokes to like make it on TV and stuff but I mean I don't know why I keep running like going back to this gym analogy because I don't go to a gym but <laughs> I like I, it once you get in the, the practice of doing that, it feels normal and natural to come mm -hmm. in and be like, here's another, like, I, I basically believe that like most comedy writers, most comedians, most people are bottomless wells of ideas and jokes and creativity and stuff. And it's only people like, oh man, I was, I did, um, I did like a Q&A type thing with some college students recently and one of them was like, what if you write something and that's the only good thing you'll ever write? <laughs> and like, isn't that a very familiar fear? Like, I understand that fear very well, but I also know that like, no, you're, of course there's more. Of right. course there's more. So like the idea of coming in and doing that every day didn't throw me. That's generally like a good lesson of just like not being precious about stuff. Totally, and just kind yes. of throwing stuff out. That's a good thing that you think you learn like an improv a lot because it's like this scene sucks, but it's over, you know. So yeah. You can move on. And it's also like you see on show. Or I think Nikki and Sarah might have been the first taste of it. I got like how quickly and easily other people will cut, changed cut, right? Whatever you you do the writing part, and then it's you it's what happens next is sometimes out of your control and like being not precious about jokes is like pretty key to your sanity and survival. Like if you get upset when someone cuts your joke, like no one's got time to fucking coddle you about Right. Like, you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. it, it, yeah, volume is a, is a good thing to focus on, I guess. <laughs> uh, you mentioned that you, you never worked on a sitcom. Would you want to do that in the future? Maybe eventually. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I think like I feel pretty comfortable with, late night and 
uh, short form stuff like sketch and and jokes. That's like my that's where I feel um, most like mm-hmm. at ease and most like I know what I'm doing. So, but yeah, maybe a sitcom eventually. Uh, and then after At Midnight, you worked at uh, Not Safe with Nikki Glaser. Yeah, and that was cool because it was directly across the way from At Midnight. So it was oh. like all, we were on the same lot, and it was a, a handful of the same people like in the mix there that were... And it was, it was like that show felt more specific to... Like a more grown-up... Uh, like we weren't just doing tabloid news. Like Nikki right. had more of a platform to like talk about her her own experiences and like be be uh, more like intimate with the audience, mm-hmm. I guess. So it was cool. Uh, how was like how was like writing about like uh, I guess different? I guess the show was about sex. So it was how mostly was, sex. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what was it like like working on that like specific topic? I mean, it definitely, like, it kind of numbed me out on sex for a while because <laughs> I was like, I can't just, like, go talk about hand jobs for eight hours with my coworkers and then, like, want to give one. I was, right, right. <laughs> I had no, uh, for a little while, I did not have much of a sex drive, but <laughs> I, uh, it did feel like cool to, to just be that open about it. I mean, I don't know. Nikki, uh in the first episode talked about how like she didn't get the sex talk from her parents. Like I didn't really get one either. So there was a lot, even as like adults, like there's still lots of stuff to like learn. And, uh, it's very fun to joke about, of course. So, uh, yeah, that show went to like, we went to very crazy places for that show. We went to a legitimate foot fetish convention, like a foot fetish party like an hour and a half outside LA that was basically like Craigslist come to life, like the adult (laughs) encounter section come to life. And it was like a, a basically unmarked barn that was full of like BDSM stuff and people paying one another to like touch their feet. And I was just like, we are here for work. (laughs) (laughs) So when you go on something like that, are you there to like pitch jokes to like Nikki as like stuff's happening? Yeah. That was part of it because you know she's she's super quick on the fly. Like she can she can rattle off jokes uh, in the middle of a, any any conversation with anyone. She was like that's I think one of her great strengths. But uh, yeah, sometimes I would like be like, hey, why don't we you know try this thing or that thing? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, just there for like sort of backup and support, I guess. Uh... <laughs> Emotional and otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> So with like that kind of more specific show versus kind of some like the other show, Nikki and Sarah Live, where it's a little bit more evergreen, a little bit. I mean, it's a little bit more, there's a little bit more room for stuff. Do you prefer having like a very set subject or do you like having that room to kind of explore? I think, well, I've, I've gotten room to explore from the, like the collective bunch of shows, I feel like. And, you know, so so far, like these these three shows we've talked about, we're all like I was there for probably less about a year at each one, and so like you know eventually you do want to write. You're like, okay, I've been writing about sex for like fifty weeks or whatever. <laughs> Maybe it's time to go somewhere, uh, go to a different area or whatever. But we also were able to find other areas within that show because right. you can do relationship stuff, you can do dating stuff, you can do like 
there was one segment that was about like the trend of women getting labiaplasty, which is like such a horrifying surgery. Right. Um, but you know that's that doesn't feel like like just like sex. That's like a uh, right, right. There's like room for some social commentary there, I guess, uh-huh. um, or some more like personal revelation, I guess. So we, yeah, it 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 didn't feel like a straitjacket to be. It, to be on a, a all a sex focused show, it was there was still plenty of plenty of room to explore. Uh, so after that, you you worked on the roast of Rob Lowe, right? Yeah. What was that like? Oh my god, that show was so fun. I man, the roast is like it's funny. I have some friends who don't like roasts. Like some friends of mine are like, I just don't like watching people be mean to each other, and <laughs> you know, like it's. I I've heard people make the argument that like. It should be people who are all friends with each other, and that's not exactly what it is anymore. And I think that's all kind of beside the point because the roast is an exercise in pure joke writing. Right, it's like, yeah. It is like the burns and insults are like the purest, very pure. Um, like either it gets a laugh or it doesn't. Uh, that is an incredibly fun writing job. So, <laughs> and it was the room was full of like, there were a lot of sort of veteran like guys who had worked on lots of roasts and then a few people who I knew from this and that. But like, uh, you, we would all, you know, break off and write jokes about a given person on the, on the dais and then come back together and read them out loud. And that's like, good goodness gracious. What a fun way to spend. Right. I can. Yeah. (laughs) So are you, uh, so you're, are you writing just generally those stuff? Are you writing like specifically for people who are going to be on the dais, like the non-comedians and stuff? Yeah, that's a bit of a process too. Cause like you start sort of like, okay, everybody, you know, take a crack at, uh, 10, 20 jokes about, or however many you can write in an hour about X person about like start with Rob Lowe or whatever jokes for other people to say about him. And then as the show approaches, like as we get closer to the show, it's, um, sort of divvying up who's going to say what and then fine-tuning that to their voice and giving each person's set kind of like a theme or like a, a structure. Um, and so, like, you know, we all start out writing jokes for everybody, and by the end I ended up working mostly on sets with the singer Jewel, who oh, yeah. knocked it out of the park. I mean, oh my goodness. Jewel was like the dark horse because everybody was like, huh, what, what? And she sang this, like, wonderful song and she's just super charming and great um and then yeah i worked with nikki a little bit on that one too and uh it was it was just so much fun so such a it was only like a few weeks but it felt like uh, a a major like learning experience for me and this was the roast with Ann Coulter, right? Yes. <laughs> okay, yeah, because I remember, I remember, actually, I watched I watched a clip of that fairly recently, and Jewel had, like, the best joke on, on Ann Coulter. Jewel fucking rules, yeah. man. I'm, like, I'm, I I loved Jewel as, you know, when she was in the You Were Meant For Me days, right? but I also <laughs> love her now. <laughs> <laughs> well, so did you have to, like, write jokes for Ann Coulter at all? I mean, I, and I was sort of spared... <laughs> having to work directly with her. Uh, a few of the writers were, uh, you know, coupled with her and uh, said that she was, you know, maybe not the most comedy savvy. <laughs> <laughs> but she she did take it pretty well, I guess. Like, mm-hmm. it was, she was 
sort of like the the villain of that show in a way and like uh, boy yeah what a what a complicated person right that was a that was a very strange roast in terms of the like non celebrities or not non comedians they brought in yeah but like Peyton Manning right Peyton Manning that's very yeah very odd group but it works it's really funny it, yes I think that that is my sort of answer to the people who are like well they all should be friends it's like yeah well if everybody has great jokes then who cares <laughs> <laughs> well it's just weird seeing Peyton Manning make a joke about Ann Coulter like it's just so strange this is a real thing to say. Uh, did, were you given, like, directions of stuff you couldn't or couldn't uh, write about? There are some guidelines. Like, mm-hmm. some people say, like, please don't mention X or Y thing right. or whatever. And, you know, luckily, like, everybody's got plenty of, plenty of, uh, everyone's got multiple targets on right, them. Right, right. So, yeah. What are the, the hallmarks of a good roast joke to you? I think, oh, I forget I forget who said this. It was like it should like illuminate something about the person that like everybody sees but nobody had yet acknowledged, mm. or like it should like sort of summarize like the essence of the like basically like drive a a, a stake through their soul, <laughs> I guess. But it's it's probably a good thing that those are once a year and short jobs because if you write roast jokes all day all night, it would probably make you like relatively evil. But just focusing on, like, people's negative qualities. But it, it also, like, a lot of good roast jokes come from, like, a place of love, too. They're, like, sort of, like, friendly razzing as opposed to, like, deep, angry fuck yous. Like, that's actually, if, if it's too, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, if it's too angry, too mean, it's kind of awkward. But, well, it, it ends up reflecting more on the person telling right, you. Right, that's so. yeah. do you, uh Do you have a favorite joke that you wrote for that? Oh man, the uh, there was one. I don't think it made it into the show, and it was not my joke. It was uh, Jimmy Carr, who is a oh. British comedian, and he has like a really like crisp joke telling style. Uh, it was oh man, oh man, I really don't want to butcher this. He was like, some people say Peyton Manning got strong from taking steroids, but that's not true. He became strong the old-fashioned way by being retarded. <laughs> and, yeah, I'm pretty sure that one didn't make it. In, oh, I could just see Peyton Manning not being happy about that. I mean, yeah, who would be happy about that? Like, if your if your line of work involves head injuries, <laughs> but I, it, oh boy, I just yeah, I'm pretty sure that wasn't in there, but it, it made me laugh. <laughs> It's like, yeah, calling people retarded is not in and of itself funny. It just is a well-written joke. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And you just taped your Comedy Central special. Yeah. Like this past weekend, right? Yes, it was last Saturday. Wow, that's crazy. It is crazy. (laughs) What do you do to prepare for like a half-hour special on TV? Um, I, I... Ran the set a bunch of times. There one comic we taped them in New Orleans, and one comedian there who I hadn't even met was kind enough to throw me on a fun show, like right off Frenchman Street, which is the street in New Orleans that's a lot of live music, where you okay. can kind of like weave in and out of places and hear bands. And so there was like a really fun, good audience there, and I got to do the jokes one last time before the taping locally, which was a big like. I think I had some fears about like, well, I have never performed in New Orleans and what if the audiences have like, what if the audience is different and we don't get along and blah, blah, blah. And that ended up not being a problem at all. Everybody was fucking wonderful there. So 
uh, yeah, it was practicing the set around town. Like UCB East uh, had been, I run a show there roughly once a month. And so I used bits of that show to like get some of the rusty bits in good shape and like um, work out. There's, there was a lot of, like, last-minute fiddling, which is a, a bad habit of mine, I guess, <laughs> where it's, like, you know, I they had a, I had done the set that I, I basically, here, you do, like, here's the set I'd like to do, and they say yes or no, and once they've said yes, you could just do that set, right. and that would be probably the, the gentlest path to take that would still make everybody happy but <laughs> I ended up spending a bunch of time being like we're gonna find a new tag for this we're gonna find a different ending for that one we're gonna rearrange the order of these things and so I was fiddling a lot <laughs> and uh, it ended up all being fine and good but yeah that's that's one way to channel anxiety I guess because it felt so like surreal that it was happening <laughs> how, how do you get a special like, do you have to like audition for like comedy central at all yeah it would be crazy if they just let you come out and right. do it right like, <laughs> so usually the process is like you make a half hour tape somewhere you you know set up a camera at a show where you think there's going to be a good crowd and where you feel ready and you send them the tape and you go here's what i'd like to do and uh if they like it you do it and if they don't you try again next year <laughs> wow and that's pretty much it that seems kind of uh, easier than I thought. Like, it just, like, uh, in terms of, like, it's less work than I thought it would have to be necessarily. Oh, it's a fuckload of work. Well, though. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's less, the, pro- the actual process is less time-consuming than I thought. Yeah, no, I think, like, they, they handle it really well. Obviously, you have, to, you have to work really hard to get the good half hour, I mean, it took, me, it took me probably 15 tapes to make one that I was comfortable showing right. anybody. Like, and... Finding a place in New York or in LA where the, you know where a lot of us are, like to find a place that will let you do half an hour when you don't have credits to back it up yet is pretty challenging. Like mm-hmm. UCB, I feel like I owe, I, I should probably send everybody there a edible arrangement because they <laughs> let me they let me experiment a lot with that set and like gave me a, a, a like set time to go practice and play around and uh but yeah setting up that I, I went to philly a couple of times because there's a theater there that's like extremely accommodating and has fun crowds and has a similar feeling to ucb and it was a good place to go practice here's here's one version of this half hour here's a different version of this half hour and like just tape it and get over the mental hurdle of watching and listening to yourself like <laughs> yeah. if you ever listen to yourself leave a voicemail like it's agonizing mm-hmm. a 30 minute voicemail is <laughs> i mean like to sit through that is actually pretty hard some people don't mind listening to themselves but for me it's a challenge so i like yeah and my manager also was really was really helpful and awesome in helping me like shape it and pick the things that were working the best and connect pieces that were written years apart, but suddenly fit together right. and stuff like that. So, because it is, it's a summary of like, for me, about six or seven years of stand-up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you like uh, craft like a thirty-minute thing? Like, how do you like know like, like do you did you have to like cut a joke for instance because it like did like a good joke that works but didn't really fit in the half hour? Totally. Yeah, there are some that like, I I started to find when I was pulling the pieces together that some of them would overlap in a way where it's like this joke Mm. steps on this joke and so it's only one can live or like 
here are five jokes in a row that all like hang in this nice area. Like I have a lot of jokes about food and about eating alone and about like being gross in my house. Mm -hmm. That's like, those are maybe my favorite things to talk about. <laughs> so I had I had a bunch of stuff in that area that all fit together nicely, but then a few pieces where it's like, okay, here's this like three and a half minute story about the time I saw the Blue Man Group when I was ten, and maybe this part doesn't fit as well, mm. given that this other stuff is all solidifying. So you know, it's just yeah, it's this is the thing again about not being too precious, right? Yeah. And so do you, you do have to like watch yourself to like understand like I gotta cut that joke. I gotta, so you probably watch yourself do stand up a lot. I will. <laughs> I it would have to be like yeah. Again, on a day I was feeling pretty good about myself <laughs> and like you know usually at night and like with a you know it, it, I would like maybe get a little high or something just to feel <laughs> a, a step distanced from it. Right. But, I wish I was like a strong enough person to just sit down and fucking watch it. <laughs> but uh, it's still mildly horrifying. Um, but yeah, I, I by the time let's see, it was it by it took I worked on that for most of the summer. That was like my my sort of project for like yeah, spring and summer months and and I got it to a shape I was happy with by like August. Is there a difference between uh <clears throat> performing just like live and then just doing stuff for something televised yeah i think like live stuff you want to stay present and in the moment and feeling what's happening in the room and like you're creating an experience for those people who are there so like if somebody drops a glass or like if there's a heckler or if there's if there's like a something goes wrong with the sound, like you're better off acknowledging it in some way than not. And if it's TV, it's like, you know, there are lots of parts of the live experience that don't translate. And you want to, I think, I'm sort of talking out of my ass here, but I think the TV friendlier approach is to go like a little faster, a little tighter. Mm. Um, like, I, I don't know. I don't know actually, because I've only I've only taped one thing for television. But I was thinking, like, you know, screwing around with a guy in the front row, like, where are you from, and stuff, might not breed as well on television as right. as like a, a bit that you've prepared. <laughs> it seems like especially too, if you're doing like a late night thing, like on Conan or something, it seems like you do want to be quick and oh, kind of yeah. tight in that because it's like pretty strict. Those sets are like super refined too. Right. Like those those there's a lot of back and forth. It typically, I think I haven't done one of those, right. but it, there's. It seems like there's a lot of kicking it back and forth to get it to an exactly perfect place, so you can't take a detour into like get a load of this guy with a hand, right. great clipboard, you know, like you know, <laughs> it wouldn't make sense to do it. Right. I just imagined that you like if you had a heckler at your your taping, how terrible that would be. I think they encourage them not to. Right. Those, yeah. those audiences know that they're there for TV tapings. There's like five camera, like jib operators all over the place and stuff. But it, it's happened before. I mean, my friend Nate Fernald, his half hour, somebody's phone rings in the middle of one of his jokes and he handles it amazingly and then comes out at the end of his special and does the joke. And they left that all in because... It was this like sponge. I, you know, the, I asked him about it afterwards because I was like, oh, this was so delightful, like so rare to capture that. And like, uh, he said that like it just happened to go that way, but the audience stayed on board the mm -hmm. whole time with that. 
Um, or I guess another example would be like on Conan, if you've ever watched the, like Rory Scovel and, um, Ooh boy, his name is leaving me. Oh, uh, Door? John? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. Their sets feel like a live show. Right, yeah. Uh, Rory's special also feels like you're at the show. There's some people who can like get the, the fun elements of a live show into a taped thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's doable, I guess. If you're like, yeah, if you're <laughs> Rory Scovel. <laughs> so uh, so the, you just taped it this past weekend. Are you like now... Like involved sick with the- and depressed. Yes, no. <laughs> I did get sick the the next day. It was almost like my body couldn't handle that much joy happening. <laughs> so I was like, "Well, here we go. I have like the flu now." Um, <laughs> but yeah, sorry, you were asking a question. And I cut you off. Oh well, just that. Are you like involved like at all with like the edit of it? Like, how do you like jump in with that? Uh. I mean, they're editing a batch of them at once, so they can't have us, like, like all of nine of us breathing down their necks, right. being like, I like, well, my face looks here, but not here, and can we sweeten it? You know, like, I, <laughs> we're not we're not in the room for those. But we are able to, sit, like, offer our thoughts, basically, or it's like, hey, I really like this bit. I feel good about how it went, and, like, this one, maybe not so much, and blah, blah, blah. And they can take that into account or not. Mm-hmm. So we'll see what ends up in some stuff has to die. So yeah, yeah. that's supposed to be kind of nice though, because you can kind of just like it's done now. You can kind of push it away. And then... I have this has been an ongoing dialogue. Yeah, from, internally for me, where I'm like, I'll be about to fall asleep, and then I'll be like, I think I did that line wrong, and then I'll be like, There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do about that. Just like let this go. <laughs> when does it? When does it come out? Oh boy, I think it's supposed to be sometime next spring, and I. Uh, I'm very excited. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it was so cool. <laughs> in fact, I was so excited. The first words out of my mouth in the set, pretty much unconsciously, were "This is so cool." <laughs> I, I kind of regret that. <laughs> I couldn't help it though. It was a, a beautiful full theater, and like your names on a giant screen, and like cool yeah. old timey neon, and like it the. Oh, boy. I mean, I had been performing in front of, like, broken pinball machines for seven years <laughs> and, like, stinky hookah bars and stuff. Like, it felt really... It was very exciting. My family was there. Like, it was just... It was just great. Yeah. Uh, and you currently work on The President Show. Yeah. Uh, how did that happen? Oh, man. This was cool, too. So, it was... Um, I did... I had worked on the Independent Spirit Awards was the last job I did in L.A. before I moved back here. Uh, And I had decided, I was like, okay, we'll do this show, and then I'm going to go back to New York and do stand-up. Just because L.A., it's a little harder to get stage time, and I felt like things were kind of plateauing. um, And I missed it. I missed, like, the community of people that I started with who were mostly still here. So I decided, I was like, I'm going to block off three months to do nothing but stand-up and... I'll like make it work and we'll figure it out as it goes. And I was in New York for like three weeks when I got uh, uh, called in for a meeting with the President Show folks. It's Adam Pally, Anthony Antamanic, um, Peter Gross, Jason Ross, uh, and JD Amato. That was the, the crew. Uh, and. I, as soon as we started talking, I was just like, oh my god, I want to work with these people so bad. Like, this is so fun and great. And uh, it ended up working out. 
So I was suddenly employed, <laughs> and uh, I, I, that show is so like special and awesome. So I, you know, I feel really lucky that I like happened to be in town when they needed somebody. Um, even though that wasn't like my original plan, it was a lot better than my original plan. Mm. So, what's it like? Uh, what's it, well, so you're there before the show started. So what's it like when like um, Tamanik has like this show impression that's very good, and then like forming a show around that? They already had a lot of the the like structure of the show worked yeah. out. Like we were, um, like it, we were not like feeling around in the dark. There, it was it, a lot of it was like learning, learning what works for his voice the best. Like I think. Also, it was the first, that's the first, like, satire that I'd written where it's, like, it's important for the jokes to have a point and important for the jokes to have the right target, too. Like, if the roast is just, like, fuck all of you, like, yeah, yeah. the writing for, uh, uh, you don't want to just do an impression of the real guy where you make him look funny. You don't want to make actual Trump look fun. Like, you don't want to exaggerate the racism or the sexism or any other quality of his without it humiliating him in the end. It has to stab him somehow. So, like, we were... A lot of the writers, I think, also hadn't had that experience. And we were all learning how to, like, use that muscle. And it was... I mean, it's very gratifying to humiliate this man. (laughs) (laughs) I think... It, it's there it was it's a it's a very cathartic job because I was glued to the news I used to just like I would like pass the whole night not sleeping reading news about like Trump and Russia and it, this was like right around the in March of last year or this year rather so he had been in office for like two months and I was just like oh my god what is happening <laughs> and it didn't connect with my work necessarily like I, I had a stand-up bit about my mom voted for Trump so I had you know, a, a, a set that was about that. But I, I wasn't used to talking about politics. I, like, wasn't, like, a news junkie. I didn't think that was necessarily my area. But having to write jokes um, about the news that were that would hit Trump was, like, super-duper cathartic. Right. It freed me up to talk about other things in stand-up, too, which was, like, a giant gift. Both uh, both my parents voted for Trump. It's a, oh. it's a classic. It's the parents, I mean, yeah, the parents of the world. Like, oh, great! The people who I who I loved and trusted have betrayed me. <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's it's very it's very tricky. Right, right. Uh, do do you find it difficult? You know, Trump. Like every, every day, there's like a, a new thing, and every day he's also acting very strangely in a heart that's kind of maybe difficult to satirize. Do you find that? It's it's not difficult because there for me the part of that I like writing about the most with him I guess is like and I think I mean full credit to Anthony for like giving us this lens to see him through all the psychology of Trump like how did he get to this thought and like what is what are his habits and what does he do in his private time and like you know all the sort of like bizarre habits and rituals of a rich but lonely and losery 70 year old man like thinking about his sort of internal life always yields stuff right so um 
there was, there's that part. And then we also have a team of really good researchers who, uh, like, as somebody who was just learn just then learning about a lot of new, like, I hadn't been following everything that had been happening in Syria or whatever uh, as closely as they had. They were more, like, sort of journalisty news junkie types that could offer really lame and friendly explanations to comedians. And, like, working with them gave it gives a lot of the jokes more more of a like a little more weight to them when you can back it up with information and real things he's actually said and like yeah I, there's a really the, the the machine operates very well there mm -hmm. everyone's like smart and with it and also really silly and goofy which is you know i think that's what you want is to be able to swing from smart to idiotic <laughs> as smoothly and freely as possible right. <laughs> Uh, and you're now the head writer there. Yeah. Uh, what are your responsibilities now as a head writer before? Well, I'm. I it's a lot of like. So say we have an assignment where it's like you know we all need to write. Uh, five, whatever. I'm not coming up with a good example right now, but if everybody's taking a few shots at or a few few cracks at a, an assignment, like somebody has to round up all the material and look it over and pull out things that would work things that feel like they work and things that feel like they work together and like help sort of rein it in a little bit I guess and also to represent the writers in meetings with other departments and like um, you know try to try to be uh, you know try to try to keep the the comedy intact i guess mm -hmm. but the it, it's also it's an unusual show because the showrunners are the showrunners are super talented comedians and writers themselves like not every show has ucb people in its highest positions right. so like i i had a i had a lot of and also the other writers are super experienced wonderful like just go get in like heroes so I think it wasn't I wasn't like under an avalanche of responsibility I had like a lot of support and and very good people around me mm -hmm. so but yeah it's it was a little bit of, I hadn't like managed a team of people before and they are the easiest to manage because they're so good so <laughs> Um, so there's so much political satire now. Everyone's thinking about politics now. Yeah. How do you manage to like stand out from uh, the rest of them? Well, some of it is by the design of the show, right. which is that we get to put the words in his <clears throat> mouth. And like, you know, it is as opposed to being like, I am a reasonable man in a suit and get a load of this guy. Right. Like, can you believe <laughs> what he did? We get to go right to like, yeah, I did that. And yeah. like talk from within, within the beast, which I think is like. It's just, it's a fun angle to, it's a fun way to come at a lot of these stories and it's different. So, um, you know, I think that, that alone makes it a, a, a different experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, what would you like to be doing next? I mean, I'd let, it's the standup special now also kind of marks the like ceremonial burning of the first six or seven years right. of material. So I'm actually really excited because now I get to start with like a clean slate and hopefully work towards an hour next. Yeah. I think that's probably what's next. And that will probably take 
a long ass time and it's maybe too optimistic a goal but <laughs> i i'm very excited to uh like right this month i'm freed up from like where the president show we did this fucking awesome christmas special sorry to toot our horn it's just <laughs> the christmas special is really incredible and that was our last show for this year and the stand-up taping is done as of a week ago i have the next few weeks to just sort of like sit with my thoughts and like <laughs> start putting together some new material and like start uh uh getting back into doing shows and stuff i'm like i'm very happy with how things shook out it this year has been super fun and amazing yeah yeah okay so we're gonna wrap up uh with you giving your thoughts on a, on a sketch pitch i oh, have great. america's favorite segment uh okay this is a pretty half... <laughs> you can see why I uh, the segment's controversial. This is a pretty half-fleshed idea here. So, uh, it's a commercial for a guy doing parodies of Weird Al songs. So, just normal songs. Uh, <laughs> so, it'd just be like, if you loved Another One uh, Rides the Bus, you'll love Another One Bites the Dust. Oh, I see. And then it's him <laughs> him singing that um, that song. Is it is is it Weird Al's doing the singing? I th- oh, that's interesting. I was just thinking it was another guy. It was but, a guy doing. But there it. should be some relation maybe between the two. Between it could be like Weird Al's like weirder Al, weirder Al, Weird Al's brother maybe, or Weird Al's yeah, um, yeah. Normal Al. Normal Al. Oh, Normal Al. I mean, you know, just I'm just spitballing here. <laughs> I like that Normal Al. Yeah, Normal Al doing Weird Al covers of the regular songs. I think I think yeah. it's got some legs. Yeah, I think that's a good bit. Yeah, <laughs> give it a whirl. <laughs> All righty, there that was America's favorite segment. Alan pitches a sketch idea that he thought of very recently for this podcast. All right, anything else you want to plug? Um, no, not at the moment. I'm I'm plugless and happy. <laughs> All right, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of On Comedy Writing. I want to thank Nick Doss for supplying the sweet tunes, Zachary Glassman for giving us the awesome logo, and Boardwalk Audio for hosting us. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, and like and follow On Comedy Writing on Facebook and Twitter. See you next week. Audio podcast. For more information and shows, visit boardwalkaudio.com. Don't forget to rate and subscribe now.